All right, everybody, welcome back to a oh, wait, messing around with my mic too much. Can you hear me? Okay, by the way, like, is the audio good? I can hear you fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So welcome, everybody back to another episode. Ah, you know what? This is not good. Just because like I'm holding the mic in my lap and it's going to make a lot of annoying noises. So I should man up and just put the mic on the table. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Third, third take. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Back with Dave McConey once again. And today we are attempting to have a more technical discussion about something that has been a hot topic in the industry. Uh, lots of interesting debates, lots of kind of flaming wars about this. And this is something that Dave and I have discussed privately quite a lot. So uh, you will see what that topic is in a second. But Dave, first of all, welcome back. How are you doing? Good. I feel like I always say I'm tired <laughs> when we start. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I watched Godzilla versus Kong last night because there's not a lot to do. Um, dude, it's funny. Like Sometimes I want to talk about stuff like MMA um, or even like a movie review or something, which obviously is nothing to do with my channel. Like MMA, I guess you could kind of branch off into that. Movie review, obviously not. But I'm curious, like, how many people out there are watching similar things as I am. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a great movie. Was or wasn't? It was not. And I'm I'm not like a high like a stickler for movies. Like I'm all about like Marvel movies and just like entertainment for that brief period of time. But it was like <laughs> it was just I I said somebody must have been on shrooms when they were making this movie. Like it was just one completely ridiculous thing after another. I think it was probably 10 different times where I was like, what is happening right now? Yeah, I'm not a big movie person in general, and I don't know what it is. It's just I feel like sitting down for a two-hour long movie, it feels like a commitment almost. It's like, man, what if I don't like it? And I realize that like one hour in, <laughs> it's like, fuck, I just wasted an hour of my life. Yeah. And then I'm probably, especially, especially I hate watching movies together with someone because then I cannot just stand up and leave after an hour. Right. Or cannot just turn it off. So then it's like I, I'm forced to sit it through. Um, just one thing that uh, your Godzilla thing reminded me of is, are you familiar with the completely ridiculous movie series called Sharknado? Um, only as a joke. Like I, I hear people reference it jokingly, but I don't, I'm not completely familiar with it. I mean, it, it is a joke. Like basically... It's um, for anybody who doesn't know. I mean, just look up the trailers. It will be pretty obvious what it's about. It's this uh, new special tornado that comes that spits out sharks. <laughs> and I think it ended up having like five uh, parts to it. So like five different movies. And like the first one was very ridiculous to begin with. And it was obvious that it was one of those where the movie makers were just almost like I, I could totally see them sitting in the in the boardroom or whatever and just discussing like how things should be and it's like just kind of teasing each other almost like provoking each other like okay how could we make it even more ridiculous <laughs> and and as the newer and newer movies came up like they just came up with even more ridiculous ideas and like i think it was the third or the fourth one which i actually watched the whole thing and then it was like uh, just it, it was hilarious on its own way it's like there's different types of humor like my favorite type of humor is kind of like the Friends, like the series Friends, like that type of humor is the one that I like the most. But there is that type of like, okay, it's not really true comedy, 
is just like, my goodness, it's so ridiculous that you cannot not laugh at it. And it's, it's that, that type of thing. So I have the trailer pulled up now. And wow, this is a real movie. That's fascinating. <laughs> no, man, ju just watch the trailers or watch some scenes from it. And it's uh, or maybe some like movie reviews. There are these YouTube channels which are like reviewing like in a it, they seem like it's a it's an honest, like serious critique of the movie, like analyzing it. Like some of those breaking down the movie, it's fucking hilarious. Just watching those is, is worth it. So um, probably you don't want to waste two hours of your life watching those movies. But um, Well, and not to get like so far off the, the fitness thing. I'm sure you'll have timestamps though so people can skip it if they want. But, um, yeah. you know, people tend to see like a an A-level actor like a Chris Hemsworth or Chris Evans or something like that. And they're like, man, like I would want to do that. And it's like, dude, like... <laughs> 99% of these people, at least like coming up, had to do like nonsense, either like a bunch of training, but a lot of these like nonsense flicks. Like imagine being an actor and you're like, oh, here's your breakout. And then you're actually just starring in Sharknado and like you have to try to take this absurd role seriously. It's like 99% of them, it's just going to suck. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but there is a bunch of these, like there is... Um what was it, Robot robot Crocodile or something? Birdemic, by the way. Just uh, just watch some, if you type into YouTube, like Birdemic, so like Bird, Emic, um, best scene ever or something like that. Um, that's all you need to see. Just just seeing that one scene is, is quite an experience and that gives you an idea of how the whole movie is like. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that some people have a, an odd sense of humor. It's, it's kind of like the type of jokes that like you make in high school with, with like just trolling around with your friends, like what kind of ridiculous stuff you can come up with. And I respect someone who actually invests some serious budget into a movie, hires actors and makes this happen. Like I have some <laughs> weird respect for these people. Anywho, so um, to our topic. So we are going to be talking basically all about failure training, reps in reserve, and um, basically, that's going to be the main topic. So I, I basically made like 10 points for myself. So I made some notes for this that I want to cover here. And then I honestly have no idea if we are going to cover all of this in 25 minutes or 45 or maybe pushing 60. Um, but I just want this to be informative and um, just all the thoughts that both of us have just uh, hash it out here. So, uh, Dave, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So maybe let's start out with what failure is, like what training to failure actually means technically in a vacuum. So as we will discuss, it gets pretty murky pretty fast. But um, maybe let's just start out with what failure actually means, because honestly, I'm just seeing people posting all kinds of training videos and um, whatever, just descriptions of what they did. Like, OK, I did this to failure. Like, this was my last set. This was to failure. And then I look at it, and I just have to roll my eyes because I'm like, no, that was not failure. Like, do you actually know what failure means? So let's just start out with the basics. So in a vacuum, like all things being equal, which they are not, but let's say they are, failure is when you actually fail a rep. All right, so you do a bench press. Let's say you use your 8RM. It's 100 kilos. You can complete eight repetitions. You do the eight reps, then you attempt the ninth one, and you fail that. You just train to failure. 
if you complete eight reps and the last one was a serious grinder, like you really exerted yourself, like it was all out, like the concentric phase started or lasted for five seconds or 10 or whatever, you trained really hard. Nobody's accusing you of being a wuss, but that was not to failure. That's just technicality. So let's maybe start there. Um, first of all, any comments on that so far? Yeah, I mean, you'd think it's like it's a simple thing, right? Like most people who say that they're training to failure, they're not actually failing. Um, but you could also even argue that some of the people who are failing are not training as hard as what is meant by training to failure, right? Like, yeah, they literally failed. But like, I, I think of my cousin when he came and visited. And so, you know, I mentioned how he deadlifted 315, like the first time deadlifting, and it was like super easy for him. And then we put 365 on and he was just like, oh, I can't do it. And he like, he put some effort in, but then he's just like, oh, I can't do it. So if somebody is like that and they're kind of new and they go, okay, one, two, three, four, and then they go for the fifth and they're like, oh, no, I can't. Well, you and I both know if we, if our brains were in that body, maybe we could have done another two, three or four reps that this person didn't do. So when we say train to failure, we mean they have pushed so hard, you could not possibly do another rep. And yet people who are quote unquote failing aren't pushing that hard. So it kind of changes like, well, what are we like, what are we trying to get out of when we state training to failure? Yeah, actually, that's a great point that such an obvious one that I didn't even think of noting down, but that, that's very true. And that's one of the kind of most fundamental things that is just kind of good to clarify that uh, failure is going to mean different things based on your training experience and, you know, maybe even things like work ethic, but just assuming that you're actually someone who has experience with this, you're a motivated, reasonably hardworking person in the gym, then true failure is when you're actually failing the rep, you're just not able to do. But but definitely, I mean, I've taken friends of mine through sessions in the gym, just ask me like, hey, can you come down with me? Just, just help me out. I'm kind of new to this whole thing. And then they're doing some dumbbell lateral raises. And I can definitely tell that they had, you know, three, four more reps in them. It's just their delts started to burn really badly. So they just aborted the set right there. Um, now, so like I said, this is all in a vacuum. So all things being equal, that's what, that's what failure is. Now, um, this gets murky pretty fast. And um, they've, this is actually something that you pointed out to me. I was aware of this, but I think I got a little bit like too pissy with the whole thing just because I got so annoyed with people using the term just too haphazardly and not really using words according to what they actually mean. But then you pointed out that like, look, training to failure, training one rep from failure, or even training beyond failure, like all of those things can start getting like kind of fuzzy and it all starts blending together and it really becomes a subjective thing. So do you want to touch on that? Sure. I mean... You know, a lot of times when people say training to failure, they mean that they're training to the point that they couldn't complete another rep. And, and I think colloquially, that's a fine way to use it. I mean, technically, no, you didn't fail, but like, I get it. Like that, that's as hard as most of us would recommend training. And that's, 
actually where I think like the RIR kind of thing comes into play, um, or even like an RPE, like if you said it's a 10, like I would always say, like back when I was like 14 writing this stuff down, I would say like a 9.5 was like, oh my God, like I just could not do another one. And a 10 for me was actually failing a rep. Um, but you could say a zero, zero RIR. And that I, I think gets the point across just fine. Um, but you know, if somebody says, oh, I trained a failure and it's just super hard, like, I, 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 like I'm not gonna like get on their case about it. Um, however, as far as I like, kind of like muddying the waters a little bit, you have a lot of factors that play into it. So for example, let's say that I could get 10, and you know, if you look at like my Instagram, there's a video of me doing curls. And on the 12th rep, so I only show like the last two in this video, but on the 12th rep, I leaned back and actually paused very briefly and I leaned back. So if I kept form exactly constant, then I would not have gotten the rep and I would have trained to failure. So are you saying then that when we said, oh, okay, I want you to train to failure. Well, if I kept form the same and I didn't complete it and less work was actually done then, I would have trained failure, but because I arched just a little bit, just enough to get it, now it well, that's not trained to failure. Well, I, I worked even harder because I actually, and we can get a whole thing about how loose form actually makes things harder, but you know, we won't break off on that tangent. But anyway, um, it's, it's, you know, you can manipulate form a little, especially like back exercises. I mean, you can go to failure with perfect form rows and then just add a little momentum and get another five or six reps. I mean, easily, like on a barbell row or something like that. So um, that I think complicates it a little bit because these little things you can do can push you almost, and in a way you can almost argue that's beyond failure training, right? You, you, you lessen the stimulus just a little bit in that really hard part of the range of motion so that you can continue. Um, yes, so um, one thing I just quickly noted down as you spoke there um, is um, ju just kind of a random thought for everybody that I think uh, is, is important to keep in mind is so the row, the, like a cable row is a perfect example of that where because the sticking point is at, right at the end of the movement, like you can kind of always attempt a new rep, but you just won't be able to completely finish that movement or that the, the concentric you won't be able to finish with perfect form so then you can extend the set a little bit by using a bit of momentum i think like a good rule of thumb or like in in general like i think when you're modifying the form to get extra reps i think the most important thing that i always tell my clients is it's fine to do that but make that a standard thing so for example uh like lots of examples on the on a curl if you can only get that last rep by leaning back a little bit more and then doing a little bit of a cheat curl motion then that's fine but then always do that on the last rep so you know that okay the last rep is gonna be a bit cheaty but then always make it the last rep or always make it the last two reps just don't start messing with the set where okay like week one it was the last rep only that was a bit cheaty week two it was the last two. Then, you know, eventually you're like, yeah, you added like five more reps or you added a bunch of load, but you're just making more and more of your reps more and more cheaty. So just make it standard. So that's just kind of a general rule to abide by. So that's kind of more so just a, a random thought that I wanted to throw in there. Um, and then 
the other thing is it kind of ties into the whole concept of like uh, technical failure, which a lot of people like to use. So it's like, okay, don't train to failure, train to technical failure. So when form starts breaking down, I think that um, on certain movements, that becomes a little bit a little bit murky, a little bit hard to exactly get it right when that point comes. On a lot of movements, so this, this is where it becomes like very exercise specific. On a lot of movements, basically training to failure or one rep from failure or training to technical failure, like all of these things basically become the same thing. Because if I think about a Romanian deadlift, for example, which this week I just tweaked my back on a little bit. <laughs> basically, the alteration in my execution on the last rep of that Romanian deadlift, which ended up hurting my back a little bit. If you look at like the millimeter difference in the in my posture, or just just how much less rigid my lower back stayed, is basically identical to how much my elbows would move when I'm like giving a little bit more momentum to a cable curl, which is to say it was very, very minor. So on that cable curl, I just moved my elbow forward a little bit and that helped me to get that last rep. On that Romanian deadlift, it was, if you looked at it from the outside, probably you wouldn't have even noticed the difference, but I could feel it internally. Like it literally was just like a millimeter difference in my posture, but that was already enough to like almost get me severely hurt. So on a lot of movements, basically you have to be like pretty strict about like when you're stopping the set. And and so on a deadlift, basically, I would say there is almost no such thing as training to like true failure, because in practice, that just means form breaking down and getting hurt. Um, I would agree that to like if, you, if you're talking technical failure, um, it's, it's hard to get to failing on a squat without some of your mechanics changing. I certainly think you can obviously train to failure to the point that like you go down for another rep and you don't go back up, obviously. Um, but if, if you're just saying like inherently in that process, your form is going to change. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually hard to like really get to that point without um, like really exposing yourself to higher injury risk. So in practice, like very few people will actually do it, which is why I often don't quite buy it when in studies they say they squat it to failure. Because like, uh, especially if you're a researcher, like you're not going to get your participants hurt. So you're probably going to make them stop when you see that, okay, it's starting to look a little bit funky. So I've only run a couple of studies and in one of them, they the participants were squatting, quote unquote, to failure. But it, I mean they were pushing themselves fairly hard but you know it's just different i mean if they're untrained but i mean that's also like i don't want to just crap on the studies too because part of it is like you have to take that into account right so like a beginner trained to failure we know is just not going to be at the same level of intensity as somebody who's been doing it for like five to ten years which is also probably part of why you do see more of a benefit to failure training in beginners because they might be taking it only to the intensity that what an advanced trainee is maybe like a two RIR, you know, they just feel like it's the failure, um, which is, and I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but I mean, it is interesting when you consider that like a lot of these guys will say, well, 
the more advanced you get, the harder you have to train and you have to train, you know, to and beyond failure. And yet all the studies really kind of show the opposite. Yeah, I think maybe we should just briefly address the whole like difference between saying one rep from failure versus saying one RIR versus saying like a nine RPE. So I'm just quickly going to say, like usually I like to use the terminology reps from failure because it's very straightforward. So to me, and I think not just to me, but objectively that's what it should mean. When I say one rep from failure, that means getting all the reps in a set that you can. So basically you're doing an M rep. So if it's your eight rep max on a bench, you're doing eight reps. That would be one rep from failure. Um, that is not the same thing as one RIR. So one RIR means that you could complete one more rep. So one RIR is actually two reps from failure. And then RPE is like even murkier. So I just actually pulled it up before we started talking. So a nine RPE uh, means that you could do one more repetition. All right. So that would actually be two reps from failure or that would be one RIR. 9.5 RPE means could not do more reps, but could do slightly more load. And then 10 RPE is could not do more reps or load. This is it's just a perfect illustration of why I don't like using RPE or RIR. And it's because it's just, it just makes it needlessly confusing. If I say one rep from failure, that means you got all the reps that you could in a set, but you didn't fail any reps. If I say zero RIR, that could actually mean failing the rep, but it could also mean one rep from failure, like both are zero RIR, because you didn't have a rep in the tank. <laughs> and then with RPE, I honestly think that RPE is most useful for like power lifters and people who lift very heavy, because like if you do say like four reps on, on the squat. So you squat it 300, you could do four reps and there is no way that you can do five reps. Now, if you go down, let's say to like 290, maybe you can still do four reps and it feels a little bit easier, but there is no way you could do five reps still. And then at the same time, you could go from 300 to 305 and you could still grind out four reps and it would be even harder and in either one of those cases, you're talking about four reps that you can do. It's just in one case, it feels slightly harder, slightly easier. But adding an extra rep is a huge difference. So I think in that case, this RPE scale can become useful. But I think for most of us that are like lifting to get jacked, I think it's just making it needlessly confusing. Um, any, any comments on that? I mean, I... I feel like it's helpful to have terminology so people know what people are referring to. I think what you said, like reps from failure is helpful and pretty easy. I guess that would be RFF, which I've never heard before anybody actually use. But um, like, obviously, people just say the words. But um, man, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I try not to get like too bogged down into it. And even like the failure, because then you say, oh, reps from failure. Well, then what was failure, right? And we get back to like the first question. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's it's not pointless because you need to have a way to define terminology and you have to have a way to gauge intensity and progression of intensity. Uh, but at some point, 
you know, I think as long as you're consistent and you are saying, okay, I'm consistently training to zero RIR or, you know, nine RPE or one rep from failure, I think they're all fine. I mean, I don't think anything like I'm definitely down for the idea of like getting into like, well, what's best and, and what helps somebody who's new to training, you know, visualize it best and have a, a greater grasp of it. But do I think that like, you know, the terminology you use is going to actually make much of a difference? Not really. But I, I also understand the frustration of people who see all these things. And it's like, all right, can we just have something that's consistent? Hey guys, just a brief interruption. I want to let you know that round two of my group coaching service has now opened up. In this coaching system, you will get a customized training and diet setup tailored for your needs, detailed guidance on training progression and diet management, and you will be able to interact with me and other members of the group, both in written format and on calls during the week. And for a limited time now, you can hop on a call with me and we can talk over your goals and see if you are a good fit for this. So if this sounds interesting to you, then check the link in the video or show description below and you can book a call with me. But if you would rather just send an email, you can also do that. Also check out the show description for that. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show. So I think the next thing that we should talk about is essentially how big of a difference like all of this actually makes. So obviously there is like this big debate in the industry. Should you train to failure or should you train one rep from failure, which is what I generally tend to recommend? Or should you leave one rep in the tank? Um, and I think when we address that, there's a couple of things to talk about. Um, first of all, maybe, so I, I just said for most of my clients and when I'm looking at my own training, I recommend one rep from failure. So basically do an M rep in every set. Don't fail any reps. What do you typically recommend to your clients and how do you typically like to train? Uh, typically I will start with eight reps in reserve and then I'll gradually at the end of a mesocycle go up to like five reps in reserve. I try to not have right. people push too intense. So That's good, that's good. Yeah. My standard is like you should be able to have a full conversation by the end of your set and like even more ideally like mm -hmm. in the middle of your set. Right. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's good. All right. So let's move on. Next topic. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, man, like I, I push people pretty hard because like I'll start off even with myself and clients. It's like, okay, so like you reset exercises, let's say, um, or, and that's another thing we can get into as, as well. But basically it's like, all right, you're just starting off. Well, I want you to have pretty ideal form. I want you to keep maybe one or two reps in reserve. And then we're going to progress. And to your point, you know, you made a post about it, about like, you know, if the if the reps or the sets just get more difficult, that's not truly progress, right? And this is why sometimes I'll have like a form reset because I think you have to take into account that you're working with human beings and that, yes, like this, this, one of the downsides of focusing so much on progress is that you tend to change form a little bit. And I'm totally guilty of that. So... You know, let's say you start with 100 pounds for 10 reps and it's two RIR. And then the next week it's 100 pounds for 11 reps. And then it's 100 pounds for 12 reps. Like, and you know, that's probably going to be a little bit harder because if you're beyond beginner stages, that is going to be harder. You're not going to gain one rep every single week. Um, but then as you add weight, I, one of the nice things about training and telling people to train 
pretty much all out or like, you know, you know, very close to failure is you don't have to guess, well, last time was three RIR and this time I think I had three in the tank. Maybe there was two. It's kind of hard to know. Like, it's just a straightforward, like that was as hard as I could do it. And then next week that was as hard as I could do it. Um, and, and so while I certainly want them to have the form down and I will certainly have them keep, you know, again, early on one or two reps in reserve, um, towards the end, I will say like, no, like push. And I've had clients where <laughs> there were two I've had who kind of came from like the, you know, keeping a lot of reps in reserve camp and they would email me and they say, well, man, this week was pretty hard. Like, I don't know if I could have gotten another rep. And I'm like, good. Like it's supposed to be hard. And then they said, so should I add weight? And I was like, you got the reps that I designated. So yes, add weight. And they added maybe two and a half pounds. And lo and behold, they also got the reps that week. And I said, okay, next week, add two and a half pounds. And they got the reps again. And they just weren't previously used to ever pushing that hard. And I'm not saying you should always do that, but and, and people are going to have different strategies. Obviously, you know, a lot of them work. But for me, it's like, that's just a pretty guaranteed way to know where you're at. And eventually, yes, if your form starts loosening up a little bit, then I'd say, okay, the time for a form reset, you could almost call that like my, you know, my deload, my you know, like going back to like a reset. Um, but I think that that's a good way to do it. And then when you reset, yeah, you probably will notice that you have to drop the weight a little bit to have that perfect form. But ideally, then you are beyond where you started with, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually wanted to address this later, but since you brought it up, let's just uh, address it now. So obviously, form being intact is something that we always have to assume, which is not a safe assumption ever. Um, and that's actually why recently I I started to request form videos as I start coaching someone. So I want to film themselves on a couple of key lifts and often it's it's all good so cool it's looking good we can just go from here um but oftentimes it's it's, it's going to be like many many videos sent and then me giving feedback because it's just freaking ugly or gets progressively uglier as the set progresses so if you're doing a cable fly and you're bending your elbows progressively more and more rep to rep then basically you're faking your own progression and it's it's going to be hard to actually measure your progression because did you really progress or you just cheated more and more and the same applies for any other exercise so that is one thing um and then the other thing that you brought up is that is exactly the reason why i give that prescription which is one rep from failure is because that's the easiest way to measure progression and to keep track of progression so in principle, I don't think there's any issue with someone training three reps from failure all the time if they actually are consistent with that. And it's truly always three reps from failure. If they are progressing and they're adding load to the bar or they're getting more reps and it's still the same three reps from failure, that is true progress. If someone can do that for a year and make awesome strength gains and correspondingly muscle gains, I'm 100% happy with that. But what actually tends to happen in practice is that they don't stay at three reps from failure. They will eventually go to two and then to one. And then as a coach, I'm looking at their progress when they notify me that they're, they, they're plateaued now. And then I just don't know. Like, okay, so like when did the actual plateau begin 
in your performance, as in like, when was the point where actually you didn't improve anymore, but we couldn't detect that because you were grinding closer and closer to failure. Whereas if I know that, okay, each set is basically all out, so one rep from failure, so M rep, then I know that, okay, if the weight is going up, if the reps are going up, that is true progress. When you're plateaued, that's a real plateau. So then we can actually like start diagnosing things. So that's why I like it. And that's kind of my main issue with some of the, um, you know, recommendations that are out there, other progression models that certain um, individuals use in the industry. Uh, There is nothing inherently wrong with starting a mesocycle with like four reps in reserve and gradually going up to like failure. But that just prolongs the, the time in which you're getting true feedback on your progress. That way, you're basically able to compare like apples to apples every fourth week. Because every fourth week is only the time when you're looking at, you know, one rep from failure to one rep from failure. Because up until that point, you were just training closer and closer to failure. Whereas like I, as a coach, I, I want that constant, very direct feedback on someone's progress. And the easiest way to achieve that is to keep as many variables standard as possible, which means keeping set numbers the same, keeping proximity to failure the same. And the only thing that changes is the load on the bar and the reps. So like, like just, just something to clarify, like I don't have any romantic, whatever, like you have to train hard, like true, true growth only happens when you're pushing yourself to the limits. Like that's not why I like one rep from failure is simply because of standardization and ease of measuring progress. So just something to clarify. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add there. <laughs> so this actually might be a relevant point from the John Meadows podcast that if you haven't checked it out, check it out, Brains Against Podcast. Uh, but so a, a point he made that, and again, like I, I like John a lot. John's a smart guy. I'm, I'm sure he knows this. I think maybe because there were a few comments at both in my DMs and in the comment section about it that I think maybe it wasn't clarified properly where he said something along the lines of, well, if you believe in progressive overload, how are you going to have progressive overload if you don't train to failure? And I think that that doesn't quite, it's, it's kind of a strongman argument in the sense that, um, you know, to the same point as, well, if you always train to failure, it's the same as, it's not the same, but it's the same as like you always keep, let's say, three reps in reserve, right? If you are of the belief that you will still adapt to three reps in reserve, which I believe John does not. And that's where the big distinction is, you know, at an advanced level, I believe he does not. So John believes, and I totally understand where he's coming from, that if you're an advanced trainee, you've been pushing yourself on these things, and then all of a sudden you're doing your these sets and you still have three or even four reps in reserve, that there's no way that that's going to lead to new adaptations. And on the whole, I tend to agree with him. Um, I, I mean, we can get into a number of sets and the type of exercise and the reps and all that, but just on average, I, I tend to agree with that. But if you believe, like a lot of the studies show, that when you do a three RIR set, you will still make progress, then you absolutely can avoid training to failure and have progressive overload because the whole point of the whole idea is that you would have adapted. So, okay, again, you do a hundred pounds for 10 reps, but you could have done 13. Well, next week, if you've adapted, 
then you could do 100 pounds for 11 reps because you could have done 14. And then the next week, 100 pounds for 12 reps because you could have done 15, etc. Now, again, in theory, that makes sense. In practice, I don't think that's ever going to happen because it's going to be hard for you to consistently gauge that you're three RAR every week. I think it's going to be hard to gauge that, or not just hard to gauge, I think it's going to be unlikely that you see that and then this is where somebody like myself would have a big problem where i am very focused on progressive overload and so if you told me well stay three rar but then i get to three rar and it's the same number of reps that i got the last two weeks i'm going to be pissed i'm going to say you know screw this and i'm going to want to get that extra rep and then that goes back into what you said abel you know did you really progress i would argue in that particular week no i did not progress because I had to force myself to train harder to get the extra rep. But I have increased the stimulus relative to the previous week, and therefore I will likely truly progress the next week, which is, is basically in line with what something like Mike Isertel would say, that yes, you are maybe not getting stronger week to week, but you are increasing the stimulus. So just because you went from four RAR to three RAR to two RAR, no, maybe you didn't actually get that much, you didn't gain two reps of true strength, but you've increased the stimulus. So I understand where he's coming from in that sense, um, because you, you truly are increasing the stimulus and that should lead to an adaptation. I think I and a lot of other people, like even um, like when we had the, I had the little debate, I guess, with uh, Paul Canoe and Calvin, um, where he is not a fan of the cycling. I think that's a whole other topic we could get into, but it's, okay, does it matter then to then reset to a four RIR and go up to a zero RIR over and over, which, you know, I don't think it makes that much of a difference, but anyway, um, try not to ramble too much, but yeah, that, that's basically my thoughts on it. Yeah. The, the John Meadows podcast and that, that whole little segment, um, I think there are, as you noted, basically three potential reasons for which he said what he said, which is if if you're if you're trying to institute progressive overload and you wanna get super strong, explain it to me how you can still stay three reps from failure. Like explain that to me. Um I think one reason for which he might have said that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what progressive overload is, which is how we all start out which is the belief that progressive overload means training harder and harder week to week and increasing the stimulus week to week, which it's not. Progressive overload is an outcome of adaptation to training. So you trained, you got a little bit bigger, you adapted to it neurologically, whatever, all kinds of things that go into adaptation, which means that next time around when you come back, your capacity is expanded, now you're stronger. So to actually match the effort level from last week, you will have to use a higher load to still keep the set equally challenging. That's what progressive overload is. It's basically a consequence of training, not a driver of adaptation per se. The driver of adaptation is the training itself. Progressive overload is a necessary outcome. So that's option one. Option two, as you noted, is that he doesn't believe that at a certain level, three reps in reserve is just an adequate stimulus and you just have to train closer to failure. Option number three is that he is just talking about the practicalities, which you and I talked about here, which is that it's just really hard to gauge what a true three reps in reserve is. And 
people will just intuitively train closer and closer to failure. So in practice, it just doesn't work out. And like you, because I like John and I respect him a lot, I will assume that it's one of the latter two and not the first one, which is a misunderstanding of what progressive overload is. Um, so next thing that uh, we have to address here, um, which is kind of what I uh, alluded to before, just we kind of uh, went on a different tangent, is how big of a difference does this really make from purely a making gains perspective? So um, is it going to make a big difference in terms of recovery, how much volume you can tolerate, uh, how all of that interrelates with or results in the eventual muscle growth? Like how big of a deal it is if you train two reps from failure. So let's assume that the practical issues that we addressed are not a problem. Someone is actually able to stay at three reps in reserve or stay at two reps in reserve. They're not faking their progression by training closer and closer. So let's let's assume all of that is good. How big of a deal is it if you train, say, three reps from failure all the time versus one rep from failure? Just, just first thoughts uh, that... That, that you have on this. And then I have a couple of points that I think we specifically need to address on that. So just to clarify, how how significant of a difference do I feel it is if long-term somebody is constantly training to three RAR versus one RAR? Yeah. I mean... Or, or even failing, you know, like even failing reps. So i think obviously like all the guys like dante and john and scott would say that at an advanced level like you need to train to failure so it's going to make a big difference and if you try to do all three rar it's not going to make any progress at all i think most would agree that if you're a beginner and even intermediate it's probably completely fine to train uh at three rar and again somebody somebody made the point in my comment section i forget what day this was but they were like well you know training they said something like training three or training four rar is still extremely hard i was like well i mean that obviously is going to depend on the exercise right i mean if you're doing like <laughs> if, if you're doing five rep curls and you have four reps left obviously that's that's not a very hard set but if you do a 20 rep squat and you have four reps left, that's still a really hard set. So obviously, I mean, that's just kind of a, a side point. Um, and if you're doing like, you know, the overarching point there just being that the higher the reps go, the closer overall to failure, you know, you're still gonna feel with, especially with the bigger exercises. So anyway, um, I think if you're doing, you know, 12 plus rep sets, and they have three RAR, I think you're going to progress just fine for a long time. I mean, especially when we look at all of the other factors that go into muscle growth, as long as there's some mechanical tension stimulus and, you know, you have reasonable genetics, you are sleeping, eating, etc. Yeah, I think you're going to progress just fine. Um, it, it's hard for me to imagine that somebody is really going to get, like, I mean, all the studies also, like pretty much almost all of the studies seem to support two to three reps in reserve. Um, it's just, and again, based on just really anecdote, personal experience, whatever, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that always staying three RAR and never going past that is going to lead to optimal progress. Um, and again, that's just based on 
my experience and, and talking to a lot of people. I don't know if any, maybe there's like one or two studies that show that one was kind of thrown out recently. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, so I think um, the, the first thing I want to address here um, from my end is, is kind of the arguments against training to failure or even like very close to failure all the time. And that is, um, you know, you hear all these things about, obviously we will have to touch on volume here a bit, but you hear all these things about how training to failure or like very close to failure, like fatigue goes up exponentially. And studies show that training to failure like prolongs your recovery time by 24 hours versus leaving one or two reps in the tank. Um, I, I wouldn't say I call bullshit on that, but I just think that it's, um, taken out of context a lot. So for one, it's, it's very hard to really, to really rely on studies that were done on this, just because what you really call failure, as we touched on it before, probably that depends on the lab that is carrying out the study. So I was actually listening to um, a podcast. Maybe I should even even actually cut it, cut in that clip from that podcast. It was Revive Stronger interviewing Brad Schoenfeld. And Steve asked uh, Brad what they actually mean by failure when they are doing their studies. And Brad said that, like, well, it actually depends. Like some researchers, like James Steele and Fisher, they like they actually have people fail reps. Like when they are literally failing the rep and then the assistant comes and helps them out. And that's what they call failure. He said that in most of their studies, they don't quite take people to that point because as a researcher, their primary concern is not getting their participants hurt. So when they say, okay, I don't think I have another rep, they will have them stop the set there. So that that is one consideration. The second consideration is, for example, I posted some videos on Instagram where I'm actually failing a rep on the chest press. Now, how that looks like is I think I will have that 10th rep, let's say, and I attempt that 10th rep for like half a second. And then half a second in, I'm realizing, ah, no, I don't have that. So I just quit the set there. So that was training to failure. On the other hand, if you're tuning into like a... Scott Stevenson or, you know, one of these like death zone training to failure until your eyes are bleeding type guys. And you will see them like grinding against the bar that is not moving and like inroading as uh, the HIT community likes to call it. So basically doing a 10 second isometric, let's say on a leg press, like you don't have the rep, but you're still pushing. Yeah, I could see that being a serious detriment to your recovery. I, I could see that seriously prolonging recovery time afterwards because whatever, muscle fibers are just exponentially fatigued, metabolic stress rises to an exponentially high level. So there's a difference between that and between me just realizing like, ah, no, I don't have this rep. Both are failure, but again, exactly like how far into that are you pushing? And again, like you said, what is the exercise? Like realizing that, okay, like this lateral raise is just not really the same lateral raise anymore. Like I would have to use some serious body English here. So I just stopped the, the rep midway through. So technically I failed the rep versus failing on a leg press. Like this is very, very different. So I just think we shouldn't get too overzealous with these uh 
concerns about oh my god like if you train to failure like it's seriously going to limit the amount of volume you can do like i really don't think that me aborting that set that i failed on the chest press one rep before that I don't think it would make a serious difference in how I will be able to train my chest two days later. So, yeah, any thoughts on that, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's like crazy grinders are a lot more prone to injury. Um, and like, I mean, that, again, like you said before, that kind of goes into, well, what is truly failure? You know, do you have to try for two seconds? I mean, is it really so different to say, well, I really struggled on that last rep. It's so obvious I'm not going to get it, so I don't even attempt it, versus, okay, I still attempt it, and within half a second, I realize it's not happening, so I just stop. You know, I would say those two are more similar, even though one could argue one was not failure and one was failure, compared to two that are both failure, but one is the quick stop, and the other one is, well, I tried and I tried and I tried and it was like a literally like seven second grind and I still failed it. That one is going to burn you out way more. And they're both quote unquote failures. So um, again, it, it's just why the conversation gets a little more muddy. Yeah. And actually, that just reminds me of something that I maybe should have addressed earlier is that just as much as there is a difference between failure and failure, depending on what exercise you're talking about. Um, there can also be a difference between one rep to failure and one rep to failure. So, for example, like you will you will just have different capacities on different days. So sometimes that last rep you can get is still a relatively smooth, um, slower, but like very doable rep. But you can definitely tell that the next one you just wouldn't get. So you don't even attempt it. At the same time, sometimes that last rep that you can still get in a set is like a grinder from hell. Like it takes like five seconds to complete it. So both are one rep to failure. So I will actually tell my clients that like, look, you can auto-regulate this a little bit. So um, on a squat or a leg press, for example, if you feel like Man, maybe I can get that last rep, but it's going to be like the worst grinder of my life. And I can tell that like... We might as well call that failure because like, like that's going to wreck me for the rest of the session. Stop there. Technically, that was two reps from failure, but we all know what happened here. At the same time, sometimes like you still get that rep. It was hard, but it was not like a terrible grinder. But you can tell like, okay, if I attempt that next rep, I would definitely fail that somewhere around the sticking point. So... That's just another thing to clarify there. But yeah, like basically the, the conclusion there is like on many, many exercises, like most upper body movements, I think, fall into this category. Um, I just don't think that there is like a massive difference in how fatiguing a lift is if you stop two reps from failure or one rep to failure or even fail and you don't do like force reps or like you keep pushing even though you're you know that you're failing the rep already so that's just something to address there um and then i guess one obvious thing that we cannot bypass here is just the whole concept of you know should you leave more reps in the tank so that you can do more volume so you know if you leave three reps in the tank then maybe and you do that all the time, then maybe you can recover from, you know, 18 sets a week. 
Maybe if you train one rep from failure, you can only recover from 15 sets a week. And since studies show that, you know, those two intensities or intensity of efforts are roughly equivalent in terms of outcome, more sets should lead to more hypertrophy. So um, this one is something that we could probably do an entire podcast on. So we will try to be concise. But uh, what are your first thoughts on this? So the idea of keeping more reps in reserve in order to attain higher volumes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I totally understand the principle of it. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's been really interesting to see so much of like the volume craze. And I just don't... like. I'm glad to see that I'm not just like going crazy here and everybody else is on board with it, you know, because for a while it seemed like everybody was going towards the higher volume. And, and now just a couple years later, you know, um, even like Scott Stevenson, who has higher volume routines or John Meadows, who has higher volume routines, you know, we were talking about like, okay, how many of these sets are like truly to failure? And it's not like a ridiculous amount. Um, I think, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Jeff Alberts. Jeff Alberts is a good example of somebody who is a fan of low volume, Paul Canoe, myself. Um, I, so, I mean, just inherently I have that bias towards lower volume. I just, I've done enough high volume stuff. Like plenty of people are like, oh, but have you tried this or that? It's like, I have, and I've had a lot of higher volume routines and I just didn't see like this massive benefit. Now I can't ignore the studies, right? I mean, there's a lot of scientific evidence to show that, hey, higher volume leads to faster progress. Now, at this point, being, you know, 15 plus years into it, it's hard for me to make any conclusions about what I do now, right? Because if I'm maxed out, and it just took longer, because I did lower volume, well, then how would I know? But I also along the way, had done higher volume routines. And I can't, you know, it's hard, because it's not like this vacuum of like, okay, I had two years of low volume, and it was all low volume. And then it was two years of high volume. And how did I gauge the progress? And even then, it wouldn't be a fair comparison, because after over time, the gains are going to slow down. So even if if that in that little thought experiment, the rate of gains stayed the same, you could argue that high volume was better, because I was able to maintain the same rate, even though I was more advanced. But anyway, um, so I just think that it's very hard other than some of these semi-controlled studies to test those out. And even to my knowledge, we don't have a study comparing all out failure for one or two sets versus reps and reserve for like three or four. We have some comparing the same sets for different levels of intensity um, and the same levels of intensity with more volume. But as far as I'm aware, we don't have that specific study. Um, so in general, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of saying, well, I'm specifically like I'm OK with manipulating volume, but I don't specifically say let's try to like keep a lot in reserve so that we can add more volume. And I think that's going to lead to more growth. Um, you know, maybe you could argue acutely that's going to have a short term benefit, uh, but it's just not something I really get into with my clients. Yeah, so. So first of all, like just disclaimer, like we won't be able to give like a hundred percent perfect answer to this. So I don't think either of us completely know, and not just the two of us, I don't think anybody really knows like, okay, exactly how is the math working out here? So if I do, if I leave this many reps in the tank, 
then my recovery will be this much less prolonged, which will mean that I can tolerate this much more sets and this much more sets is going to contribute to this much more growth. Or if I leave less reps in the tank, then each set is going to be maybe that much more stimulative, but that's going to reduce the amount of sets that I can tolerate per week by that much. That's going to reduce growth overall that much. So like nobody has that perfectly mathed out. So we will have to speculate here a little bit. But I think this is where the whole effective reps concept can come in somewhat handy, which I know Greg Knuckles debunked it pretty well. Not debunked it so much, but basically pointed out how you cannot just look at it as simplistically as, okay, the last five reps of a set is what's most effective. Therefore, you can just say, okay, I can do five heavy singles, and that's going to be the same growth stimulus as doing a heavy set of 10, where the last five reps were very hard. So it doesn't work out like that. So it's not a perfect model. However, I think we can sort of all agree that, like, let's say that from five reps from failure onwards, the set starts becoming effective. And that's where the whole like studies show that, you know, four RIR is already as effective as one RIR, like all of that stuff. That's where all of that comes into play. However, I think we can all agree that if you have, let's say, a 10 rep max, and you do, say, four reps, so you leave six reps in the tank, like those four reps are probably not going to be doing too much for you. If you just kept doing that, and even if you did like 100 sets per week, I don't think many people would expect to grow a lot from that. If you do at least six reps, then okay, now you start eliciting some growth. But I think intuitively all of us can tell that, okay, if with that 10 rep max you do eight reps, that should like still be somewhat more effective than if you only do six reps. Like I I just feel like that's a pre-intuitive thing. And I don't think any of the experts, even those that are debunking the effective reps model, would disagree with that. And and that's why everybody, like including Mike Isratel, when he's talking shit about training to failure, like he would never recommend, you know, always doing only six reps with your 10 rep max. Now, is there like kind of a tipping point where the diminishing returns are like kicking in really fast and the extra stimulus you're getting per set is not that much more, but the burden on your recovery is becoming much more. So like that's where you should cut it off. Perhaps that is, and where exactly that is, it's hard to tell. I would be inclined that probably it is roughly at that, you know, two reps from failure mark. Like probably that's like a very good sweet spot. And then I say train one rep from failure for those practical reasons that we discussed. But but I think that's where the whole effective reps model becomes like a pretty useful tool because I think we can all kind of agree that, okay, like you reach that point in the set where it starts becoming effective, which is, let's say, like four reps from failure, like there should still be a difference between that and only one or two reps shy of failure. So I think that kind of can give you um, an idea of how crazy you should go with the whole thing of like, I'm going to leave more reps in the tank so that I can do more sets. Yeah, it's fine to do that. Just don't go crazy with that. Like, don't don't go crazy with the idea of leaving more and more reps in the tank so that you can maximize the number of sets you can do per week because then you will grow more. Like, train reasonably hard. 
I'm fine with you stopping two reps from failure. You don't have to train with the recommendations that I'm giving to my clients, but probably there is that sweet spot somewhere in between. So I think if you're training at least two reps from failure, maybe you can just make the subjective call that I'm going to stop here. I'm not going to train even harder than that because maybe I can then tolerate more volume. So basically, that's my very rambly response to that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. So yeah, man, we just uh, awkwardly arrived to an abrupt end because we realized that we pretty much addressed all of the points. So Dave, um, any kind of summarizing thoughts that you have or like some uh, practical message that you want to leave people here with? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I wish, like as far as the practicality of it, it's one of those things where like if you're subscribed to mass research reviews and like you're just like a podcast junkie, yeah, you'll probably enjoy it. If you are just somebody who's looking for like really practical information, I would just summarize it as I personally believe that you should be training within zero to two reps like to failure or, you know, reps in reserve. Um, and I really feel like it doesn't have to be that complicated. I honestly think that as long as you are training with sufficient intensity, again, I would call that, you know, zero to two RIR that other factors are going to play a role here. Um, obviously, a lot of people know that, you know, genetics, how you're actually like setting up your training, nutrition, sleep, etc. Uh, I wouldn't stress too much about man, was that a one or two RIR, just focus on progressing over time. And, and I think you'll be fine. But I, you know, not to discount everything we've said there, I, I think it is important to have proper terminology so people can have these type of discussions and make progress as far as like the field as a whole so we know what we're discussing when we say RER, RPE, training to failure, all of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to come in here and says like, I found that uh, this works best for me, it works best for me to start easier in my mesocycle and start out with like four reps in reserve and gradually work up to like one rep from failure and, and this and that. And that works well for me. Like, look, I don't give a shit how you train. Like, honestly, I want you to make great gains and I want you to progress. If it's working for you, like you don't have to prove yourself to me or to Dave or whatever. Um, if it works, then it works. Like, honestly, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a competition or we are not here to just mentally masturbate. We are just trying to give you guys some practical insights and, uh, and, and some practical guidance. So as far as I'm concerned, as far as what I'm recommending, what I'm doing for myself and just what I found to be the most easily trackable, easily standardizable method for training and that honestly just seems to work really well. I can summarize this entire podcast in seven words. Train one or two reps away from failure. Maybe with that away in there, it was eight words. But basically, that that's my conclusion. So, um, yeah, folks, that was pretty much our podcast for today. Uh, Dave, it was uh, great to have a conversation again, which was a bit more kind of free-flowing. Um, we will do some Q&As uh, in the upcoming period as well. But uh, it was good to do one of these types of podcasts again. So thanks for coming on. And then uh, just let us know where uh, we can find you, your work, and all of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, podcast is Brains and Gains podcast on YouTube and pretty much all podcast apps. 
Instagram is Dave underscore McConey. Um, and right now my website's temporarily down. Um, but if you want to reach me for the coaching or whatever, it's just McConeyD91 at gmail.com. I'd probably just go to the Instagram though, because from there you can DM me or on there, there's a link to directly email me. Awesome. By the way, I edited up the words in the meantime, and I realized it was eight words and not seven. So I apologize. All right, folks, that's it for today. See you next time.